In a war, one side wins and the other side loses. And no one knows for sure until the final decisive battle is fought who will win. But it is not so in the battle between good and evil, between God and rebellious humankind. Psalm 2, our text for study today, establishes the final victory of God over his enemies in the world. The victory will come through his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As you look in your Bible at Psalm 2, you will notice that there are four stanzas to Psalm 2, each divided into three verses. And each stanza deals with a different yet related aspect of this assuring truth that the final victory is God's. In stanza 1, we see the rebellion of humanity, verses 1 through 3. The problem of humanity is sin. Man wants his own way. He does not want moral restraint on his conduct. He wants no prohibition to his desires. And he wants no discipline for his actions. He wants to be free. But in exercising this freedom, man has made himself a slave. A slave to his own lusts and sin. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. Nowhere is this seen in our society more graphically than in the pro-abortion movement of our day and their arguments for ending the lives of unborn children. We hear cute little phrases like the right to choice or the right to choose what happens to my own body. But the fact is that one's personal rights must be accommodated when the rights of others are also involved. Nowhere is self-centeredness more ugly, in my opinion, than in the pro-abortion movement of our day that wishes the wanton slaughter of children. But the fact is that all of us, on whichever side of that argument we may be on, all of us struggle with the same heart set. I want my way. I want my way. That's the bottom line of humanity and all of us. That attitude, I want my way, results in chaos in every relationship between us and God, between us and others, and within ourselves. The psalmist dramatically depicts humanity's rebellion. Why are the nations in an uproar, he writes? Why are the nations in a raging riot? The picture here is of an assembly of people which is characterized by tumult, by disorder, and a seething hatred that is directed toward something or someone. In this case, it is toward God. Why are the peoples devising vain things? The word devising in verse 1 is the very same word as meditate back in Psalm 1 and verse 2 where the blessed man meditates upon the word of God, the wicked man meditates upon rebellion against God. 
He muses within his heart. He mutters about the vain things that he would do to throw off the rule of God in his life. Although kings and rulers are mentioned, they represent not just those who are in those specific positions, but any who stand as leaders before others and who guide humanity toward its opposition, its concerted opposition against God. He says, these set themselves against God. Notice that position, against God, against his anointed, which is Christ. And he says, they take counsel together. In other words, those things that might naturally divide people are absolutely pushed away and submerged in humanity's shared rebellion against the Lord. It is a co-belligerence that crosses political lines, it crosses social lines, it crosses racial lines. It is a rebellion that unites all of humanity in rebellion against God. This rebellion is the heart of the natural man. And while it is always present, it is occasionally especially vented as was the case in the crucifixion of our Lord. It is interesting as the preacher in Acts 4, Peter, speaks about that crucifixion of Jesus. He refers to Psalm 2, attributing it to David. And he says that these very words were demonstrated in what happened in the crucifixion of our Lord. The rebellion of the heart was vented against the Son of God, and crucified him. And we will see these attitudes vented once more worldwide in the tribulation period that is coming upon the earth at the end of this age. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Man does not want the restraint of God upon him. He refuses the moral law of God. It makes no difference to the natural man what God says or what God thinks. For man, in our day, thinks he is sufficient in himself to establish his own standards and is autonomous of God. So is the rebellion of humankind. But then notice in the next stanza the response of God. In contrast to the tumultuous earthly riot that is in process in the first three verses, there is the calm of heaven, where God sits on his royal throne as the absolute sovereign of his universe. The sitter in the heavens, who is described in verse 4, is none other than the Lord, Adonai, the Hebrew name for God that calls him Lord of all. The sovereign one of everything, Adonai, is the one who sits in the heavens. And I want you to notice his twofold response. First, he laughs, and then he speaks. Yes, God laughs. He laughs not because the scene before him is humorous, but because it is so pathetic. It is like grasshoppers banding together to stop the rotation of the earth, jumping fiercely and yet unable to do anything. We would laugh at such a scene. 
It would be so ridiculous. And so is God's response. It is a deriding response. He mocks the rebellion of man. Please understand that God is ever merciful to man's weaknesses. God is patient with our failures. He is compassionate toward the awful suffering that our own sin has caused for ourselves. But he mocks this rebellion as ridiculous and absurd. And then he speaks in anger and in fury because his wrath is appropriate in this case. You see, sinners must not presume upon the patience and mercy of God. For God's justice also has its hour. And that hour has come, as the psalmist writes. God speaks. He says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. The emphasis here is upon I. God says, I have already taken action. I have set my king. Mankind sets itself against God. God says, I have set my king in Zion. And that king will end the rebellion. The announcement will rightly terrify those who are opposed to it. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Man is not terrified at God today because God is dealing with humankind for the most part in patience and mercy. But let me tell you, when God speaks in his anger, man will be terrified. He will call for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon him, to hide him from the face of him who sits on the throne. Man will be terrified when God begins to act in his righteous indignation. The response of God. The next stanza, we have the report of the anointed one. Here Messiah speaks himself. His report is regarding, first of all, his acknowledgement by God, and then his promise from God. He says in the first place that God has acknowledged him. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. By the way, a decree is a definite purpose. The Hebrew verb root for the word decree is to engrave something. And so the picture of a decree is that of something that has been said and is engraved as it were upon stone. It is an unalterable purpose of God. Messiah says, this is the unalterable purpose of the Lord that he gave to me. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now David is the one who penned these words originally a thousand years before Christ. As David wrote them, he was speaking of himself as God's anointed king. And I believe what he says here in these verses is nothing less than a summary of his understanding of the Davidic covenant the covenant that God made with him and recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7. And when he says, I have begotten thee, David was thinking of himself as having been brought into an intimate, loving relationship with the Lord as if a child with his father. 
brought into that relationship by means of the covenant that God had established between David and his household. But of course, there is something far greater here than David's own thoughts, his own words. For these words are applied to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than David, the one who overshadows his ancestor. These words are applied to him by the apostle in Acts 13.33 and specifically related to his resurrection from the dead. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. It does not mean that at the resurrection he became the son of God. The point is that as his resurrection he was openly acknowledged again by God and in a climactic, ultimate way. He was acknowledged as the Son of God. Romans 1.4 further identifies that to be the case. His resurrection is the ultimate proof and evidence that he was who he said he was. Messiah reports regarding God's acknowledgement of him. Thou art my Son. And at the resurrection God testified, This is indeed my Son. And I have given proof of that by his resurrection in glory from the grave. But then Messiah also reports regarding a promise from God, beginning in verse 8. The promise from God is that he will eventually rule over all of the nations of the world. Someday there will be the complete and utter destruction of all of his enemies so that the very ends of the earth will be the possession of the Lord. You know what that means? That means even Minnesota, in the minds of some people, will be the possession of the Lord because some people think that we live in the ends of the earth up here in the frozen waste. But further north, as someone said, this is not the end of the earth, but you can see it from here. What you can see from here, all of that, will be the possession of the Lord. The nations will be his inheritance. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. By the way, this rule will not come as the result of gospel preaching, so as to bring in the kingdom eventually by everybody converting. That is not the picture given to us in the Bible. Rather, it is of the rebellion of man unto the very end, and then God will break that rebellion and will establish his king in Zion, that is, in Jerusalem. A rod is used for smiting, for beating, and that is the picture. God will discipline the nations, and he will break them as though earthenware The illustration, of course, is of clay vessels made by a potter, which are easily shattered. And so the nations think that their rebellion is strong, and that they can lift their fists together in the face of God and succeed. And so did man think the same thing in the days of Babel. And yet God will smash the rebellion as though it was so much earthenware. Oh, the fragility of man's co-belligerence against God. All of the opposition will be absolutely smashed. Now, the gracious, restoring, healing aspects of our Lord's reign are not mentioned here. 
They are not appropriate to the context that the psalmist is writing in. Those are part of his reign also. But here he is dealing with the rebellion of man and the final victory that will come to God's anointed one. A victory that the anointed one here reports to us. We come to the last stanza, verses 10 to 12, and we see the responsibility of the opponents. In light of the deserved doom of those who rebel against God, a gracious exhortation and warning is extended by God himself. He says, show discernment, take warning, worship, rejoice, do homage, that is, kiss the Son. The picture of bowing the knee and coming before the Sovereign One and kissing the ring on His finger or the hem of His robe. Kiss the Son. Do homage to Him. Give a token of submission and loyalty to Him, not rebellion. That is the plea of God to mankind. That is the responsibility of God's opponents. God will not compromise. There is no accommodation with enemies when it's between holiness and sin. There is no middle ground between the two. And in the end, holiness will reign and sin will be judged. And so God says to sinners, in essence, repent and turn and believe while you may. Trust in my anointed one. He warns that the alternative is to experience his anger, to perish in the way, he says, or to experience his wrath, which will soon be kindled, he warns. My friend, if you are here today outside of Jesus Christ, do you understand what God is saying to you in his word today? He is warning everyone that unless there is repentance and faith that brings submission and loyalty to Him, then there will be judgment. And that will lead to utter ruin and loss and eternal hell. The result of one's faith is found in the end of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Thank God there is a refuge from His judgment. Thank God he has provided a safe place from his wrath. Thank God that he has provided salvation. And that place is the cross, where the wrath of God has already fallen upon his Son. And God's wrath will not fall there again. It's already fallen. And so there is refuge. It is just like a forest fire that is licking up the forest. And one is caught in it, not knowing what to do. And then begins a backfire, so that there is a burn off. And the one who is trapped is able to go to that area which he burned off and stand in it. And let the fire rage around him and destroy everything. But he is safe because the fire has already burned the ground upon which he stands. And so is the ground of the cross. It has experienced the fire of God's wrath already. So that when we stand at the cross in faith in the Son of God, we have refuge. How blessed are those 
who take refuge in him. Just three final concluding observations I want to make. Based upon our study this morning, the first is the greatest of follies is to oppose God. There is no foolishness so great in all of the universe as to lift one's fist in resistance and rebellion against the Lord. Because in the end it cannot prevail and it only leads one to hell. And so the greatest of follies is to be on the other side from God. A second observation I would make is that God's sovereignty assures that the final victory will be His. Yes, God's enemies may rage in their fury, and they do today. So clearly is the rebellion against God's rights as Creator and as the establisher of moral law. So great and clear is that rebellion that one cannot miss it in our society. Yes, God's enemies may rage against Him in their fury, but they cannot undermine what God has decreed. And God has already decreed that His will be the final victory. We know which side is going to win in this war. So that brings me to the third observation. And that is, be sure you are on the winning side. Be sure that you are on the winning side, God's side. If you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and believed in Him, you must do that or remain on the other side that is already doomed. There is no alternative. Be sure that you are on the winning side, which is Christ's. And if you are on Christ's side, if you are on the Lord's side, and you serve the King today, let me exhort you as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ to endure hardship and endure suffering for His sake. For whatever we experience in our battles in the world is nothing compared to the victory that is our Lord's and by His grace ours in Him. And so if you are on His side today, if you have believed in Him, then stand tall and strong in Christ and fight your battles, and fight the Lord's battles. And do not be afraid of the words or the terror of the enemy, those arrows that fly by night, the pestilence that comes in the noonday. Our Lord will guard you, for you are His. You are His. And His is the victory, and ours is the victory. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let's pray together. Whose side are you on, my friend? If not Christ's right now, will you make the decision to change sides? You must make that decision. It doesn't happen just automatically. There must come a time in your life when you understand the peril 
that you're in because of your own sin, and you see God's provision of a Savior, you believe on Him, you go to the cross where God's wrath has already fallen. If you've not done that, will you do it right now? Just tell Him so. Tell Him that's what you want, that you repent of your sin, you believe on Him, you receive Christ as your own Savior. Oh, Christian soldier, if you've been running, if you've turned your back on the enemy, God forbid if you have taken the side of the enemy, then today come back from your AWOL, get online, and be a soldier of Jesus Christ, one who is commissioned to represent him. God, apply this message to our hearts and lives for Jesus' sake. Amen.